Hello, it's Jeff Montgomery, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Hello, and thank you for joining us on another edition of Clubhouse Conversation. It's Davo, and I am thrilled to be able to bring to you today Royals Hall of Famer Jeff Montgomery, the name and the voice you know so well, but in a comprehensive, in-depth way, telling stories you've probably never heard. Monty pitched for KC from 1988 to 1999, finishing his career with the Royals with a franchise record of 304 saves and 686 appearances, an ERA of 3.20, good for third in Royals history, and Monty was a three-time All-Star in 92, 93, and 96. Of course, these days you hear him most summer nights on Fox Sports Kansas City as he serves as one of the analysts during Royals games. And Monty joins us here on Clubhouse Conversation. First of all, Jeff, welcome in. Thanks for your time. And second of all, Let's start off about your career in television, and you're also a part owner of 810 WHB as well here in Kansas City. So where did you get that interest in broadcasting? Well, it really never uh, started anywhere other than the fact that I got involved purely in broadcasting as an investor uh, toward the end of my baseball playing career. And following my career, I decided to kind of roll up the sleeves and learn more about radio broadcast business and uh, have been involved in this business for I think 17 years now, and have uh, some interest and responsibilities in what happens with uh, Sports Radio 810 uh, here in Kansas City. And then uh, probably maybe six years ago, I was contacted by Mike Swanson from the Kansas City Royals asking him if I'd have any interest in getting involved in television broadcasting because he had listened to some of my work on WHB and thought I might be a good fit. And I indicated to Mike that I didn't know if I would uh, be any good, didn't know if I'd like it, didn't know if they'd like me, but you don't know until you try. So um, as a result of that opportunity, I just kind of eased into it. And unfortunately, um, due to Paul Splitorf's illness and you know rapid decline health-wise and eventual passing, uh, you know they were uh, you know, ready to move someone into the, a little bit more of a full-time situation, and that's when uh, you know I kind of got involved and been doing it for five years now and certainly uh, enjoy being kind of back in the Major League Baseball realm of things and uh, enjoy being part of the team. Well, let's you know talk real quick about the 2014 Royals then. So your general thoughts on the first half this year, and then do you feel like this team could be the one to break that 29-year playoff drought? Well, they certainly have the ability to break the playoff uh, drought that's existed for almost three decades, <laughs> but um, you know, a long way to go. Uh, I think you know, looking back on the really the first half of the season, they, um, I think they had some performances that were uh, maybe kind of what they expected. I thought Omar Infante was a, kind of knew what you're getting, but I think he's lived up to his, you know, his billing. Uh, I don't know that um, uh, Nori Aoki, who started the season as leadoff, is now unfortunately on the disabled list. I don't know if he's going to be the guy that's going to be the answer uh, in right field, but uh, you know, he's He's shown signs at times, but just the consistency as far as getting on base because the first month or month and a half of the season, every time he scored a run, the Royals won. So he was really kind of fitting that 
you know, that description that you kind of lay things out on the blueprint by, but I don't know if it's uh, health-related, uh, injury-related, whatever it is. He just hasn't seemed to be as consistent as far as getting on base. He struck out a lot more than I think people expected. Uh, so you got those two guys at the top who are new. Uh, again, I think with Infante, you got to be pretty pleased with that. Um, and then moving down the lineup, you look at, uh, the, I guess, the production or lack of production, especially from uh, Eric Hosmer and Billy Butler there in the middle early in the season. And unfortunately, Hosmer's struggles have continued. Billy's now finally being the Billy that everyone expected him to be, and you know, he can continue to be a, a real positive inf- influence on that lineup. You know, Alex has been solid throughout the season. Lorenzo Cain, I think uh, he's been, uh, I think he's been more than uh, what people expected. You know, the key for him, obviously, is going to be proving he can play a, a season or nearly a full season without being hurt. Uh, Salvador Perez, he's a guy that he adds a lot, whether he swings the bat well or not. And he is now; he's in a hot spell. But uh, what he provides to the staff uh, with his uh, work behind the plate, I think, is very valuable. So. He can contribute in a lot of ways, but uh, we know he's going to provide the defense and the leadership on the field, and then when he hits again, it's a bonus. And uh, Moving over to third with Mike Misakis, just very, very hard to figure out what's going on with him and you know, trying to determine if he's going to be the guy that they thought he was going to be or even close to the guy that he thought he was, they thought he was going to be when they drafted him uh, you know, and, and, and have kind of moved him through the system. But... Uh, you know, you have a certain amount of at-bats, and at some point you have to have a concern that, you know, maybe things aren't going to get better. Uh, certainly if the Royals are going to, you know, uh, battle to uh, break that playoff void that they've had, Mike Musakis will be a big part of that. Uh, but, you know, and, and then looking at other guys that have played above expectations, I think Elcides Escobar is a guy that's played well above expectations. We know he can uh, flash the leather, but his bat's been uh, really nothing short of sensational for the role he's been put in. And it's great to see that and great to see him really kind of maturing as a player, his ability to contribute both with the glove and with the bat. So, you know, as far as the, the team goes, that's, that's what I look at as far as the first half. I think they've got to have a step up from the two guys in the corners with Moustakis and Hosmer if they're going to be able to contend and, and maybe break, break that drought. Well, as a former shutdown reliever yourself, how proud and how exciting is it for you to watch Greg Holland and Wade Davis out there? Well, they're in my opinion, they're the best two guys to finish out games uh, of anyone, at least in the American League. We don't see the National League nearly enough to make that, you know, that that statement. But the guys that we've seen in uh, in the American League, I don't, I can't think of anyone who would I would rather have coming in in the eighth and ninth inning. And it's amazing to see the job that Wade Davis has done. Uh, we saw Luke Hochaber make that transition last year from a uh, an occasionally good starter to a really solid relief guy. Uh, this year, Wade Davis did exactly the same thing due to Luke Hochaver's uh, absence due to the Tommy John surgery. So it's great to see Wade have really kind of found his niche. And just looking at his numbers, uh, starting versus relieving, it's just you know there's you would think it was two different pitchers, but and, and essentially he is pitching with a different style. It's obviously cut out for him, and he's the guy that uh, has taken advantage of this opportunity. Then Greg Holland, I think last year he put together the best season of any relief pitcher. I know that I've seen uh, in my time, uh, whether it be as a Royal or watching the Royals, he's he's a guy that put together that season. It was almost perfect. I mean, his he was so dominant during the course of the year. He was uh, he was a lot of fun to watch. So those two guys are, you know, they're brilliant at the end. And um, between 
uh, Kelvin Herrera and Aaron Crow and Francisco Bueno. The other guys are going to you know, have that occasional opportunity to pitch in the seventh inning in real important games. Uh, I've said this a number of times. Uh, a good bullpen will not win you a pennant, but a bad bullpen will certainly prevent you from winning a pennant. Yeah. And that's kind of what I see with this team is uh, they've got a really good opportunity, and yes, bullpen will be a big part of it. Well, let's go way back and then come back to 2014. Let's talk about you. You grew up in Wellston, Ohio. And uh, one thing that a lot of people don't know about you is that you were also quite the football player when you were growing up. You were first team uh, both in football and baseball there in high school. So what position were you in football, and then was there ever a thought to play in uh, football in college? Well, there was a thought. You know, football being played in the fall, you know, much before the baseball season comes around. Um, I had a really good senior year in football. I played defensive back, and I was also a kicker. I punted and place kicked. Oh, cool. So um, there were opportunities both to play at smaller schools as a defensive back as well as uh, go to some larger schools, some Big Ten schools, and be a kicker. So, um, you know, I, I I wanted to play baseball, but, you know, not knowing if that opportunity was going to present itself, uh, it's really difficult to, uh, you know, to gauge where you're going to be. And uh, so I thought if I could, if I could play at a, at, a, at a larger school, a Big Ten school in football, that's what I would do. But unfortunately, as a kicker, they would invite, I had a couple of schools willing to invite me in, and, and really compete for a scholarship once I got there. And so there was no certainty. So I thought, well, that's kind of a, uh, a fallback plan. Uh, the smaller schools were offering me opportunities to play defensive back. Um, in Ohio, there were, there were smaller schools and there were no scholarships involved. So I really had nothing to lose going into the baseball season my senior year. And uh, I had four schools on my list, and it was Ohio State, Miami of Ohio, Ohio University, and Marshall University. Marshall University, finally the fourth school on my list, uh, offered me a tremendous scholarship offer, and that's uh, really where I uh, was given the opportunity to display my skills. And I didn't have a good junior year the year I was drafted, but uh, fortunately the last couple of games I pitched that junior year at Marshall, there were scouts there to watch players on both Ohio University and University of Kentucky, the last two teams that I pitched against. And as a result of me pitching well against those teams, when they were watching the other players, I got an invitation to a tryout camp at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati prior to the draft and had a good camp, uh, a pre-draft workout. And uh, next thing you know, I'm drafted in the ninth round by the Reds, and that's when my career got started. Well, maybe you didn't uh, you know, pitch as well as you would have liked your junior year, but your freshman year there, you were the Southern Conference Freshman of the Year in 81, you also got a degree in computer science. So what would you have done, computer science? What, what were you thinking career-wise if sports didn't work out? Well, I would have been a, a uh, systems analyst, and at the time, gosh, going back 30 years ago, that was a pretty valuable de- degree to have because I was kind of on the leading edge of that uh, even being offered as a major. So, um, and in fact, uh, that almost lured me away from baseball. I'd played uh, about three years in the minor leagues in baseball, and my wife had her degree, and I had my degree, and we're playing baseball, and not making any money, we're contemplating having a starting a family. Uh, you know, all of our friends are out of college, or buying their first houses, and here we are living in the, you know, the spare bedroom at our parents' home. So, you know, we were really seriously contemplating going ahead and putting those degrees to work and starting a career, uh, you know, with me in computer science. And who knows where it would have taken me, but uh, that actually kind of parlayed itself into an invitation to the Major League Spring Training Camp from the Cincinnati Reds because one of the companies I'd interviewed with had called the Cincinnati Reds, the team that drafted me, and looked for a reference on me. And, and the uh, the minor league director, he, he called me right after he was contacted by this 
potential employer and said, what am I getting this call for? And I said, well, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about, you know, putting baseball in the rearview mirror and moving on with my life. And he said, well, you can't do that. He goes, sure, you, you have too much upside. I said, well, I'm not on the 40-man roster. There's no indication I'm in anyone's plans. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this job offer if I get it. So he said, well, what would it take for you to not take the job offer? I said, I, you know, I just have to have some commitment from the organization that I'm in the plans. He said, would a invitation to spring training camp help? And I said, well, certainly would help. And uh, that was my first uh, opportunity to put on the big league uniform and, and play, um, you know, in spring training games and do all the things that you uh, need to do to get the exposure and eventually the opportunity in the major leagues. What a cool story. Like you said, you were drafted by the Reds, ninth round to 83. So five seasons in the minor leagues, like you mentioned. I wanted to ask you about two random places that stood out to me. First of all, you uh, I don't know if it still stands, but you set a Pioneer League record. You struck out 11 hitters in a row in Billings, Montana back in 83. What was it like pitching Billings, Montana? It was a blast. I was uh, first time I'd ever been uh, anywhere west of the Mississippi River, and first time actually on an airplane. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, so I, I fly to Billings to get my career started, and here I am uh, not understanding. I, I guess I was just naive, but I'm thinking all these guys on my team uh, that were drafted ahead of me and even guys drafted after me, they are some superstars. I mean, I had guys that were, you know, uh, you know all-American players, had MVPs from the College World Series, had guys that I'd watched you know, and heard about, and here I am, just you know, some guy from a small town in Ohio who went to Marshall University, and uh, you know, I didn't realize uh, that I kind of you know was going to end up having an opportunity just like they did. Uh, but I got off to a really good start that season, and uh, my manager in, in Billings told me that um, you know he's seen my numbers, he's seen me pitch, uh, he'd like for me to consider relief, and I I, I told him that I'm, I'm not sure if I'm cut out for that because. I would remember when I would start, uh, after the game, I would start, I'd throw a number of pitches, and Myron would be so sore for two or three days. I, and I told him I just didn't think that there would be any way I could even think about pitching on back-to-back days. And he encouraged me to at least be open-minded and give it a shot. And uh, he said, well, let's put you in the bullpen. So I started in the bullpen in Billings, and, gosh, I got off to a really good start as a reliever, and I guess the rest was history. And that was um, really, the, I guess, a turning point for me. It, it allowed me to become a much better pitcher. I'm only you know five ten and a half and 175 pounds, so it wasn't like I was this you know bulking you know, uh, physical force on the mound. So it, it allowed me to I think stay healthier and have a longer career as a result of just pitching you know 20 to 40 pitches a game instead of 100 pitches a game. Did you see uh, an increase in velocity from that too? I really didn't. Uh, fortunately, I didn't need velocity. I was uh, uh, I guess kind of a more cerebral pitcher as far as uh, you know, trying to read hitters, uh, understand the situation that I'm that I'm pitching in, and uh, using all of, all of my pitches. Uh, in fact, not throwing hard probably made me a better pitcher because I needed to develop a changeup. I needed to have a better curveball. I always had a good fastball slider, but I needed those two off pitches. And by uh, you know by going in uh, and pitching in relief, and I needed those pitches, and it helped me develop uh, since I didn't have that you know, mid-90s fastball like a lot of other guys had. Well, I've been to 41 of 50 states. One place I've never been to, I've always wanted to go. You spent 84 and 85 in Vermont. How pretty was that, and what was that experience like? Well, it's a beautiful state. Uh, I don't know it's the best state in the United States to play baseball in because you go there from spring training where it's in the Florida, it's in the 70s and 80s, and you go to Vermont where it's in the 30s and 40s yeah. for the first couple weeks of the season. 
uh, and then you go on a road trip. Uh, we were the northernmost team in the Eastern League, and we'd go to Connecticut and we'd go to Massachusetts and uh, some of those uh, New Hampshire, some of those states uh, south of, of, of Vermont. But you'd go on a road trip and you'd miss the entire summer. You'd come home and it'd be fall. So uh, weather-wise, it was not necessarily conducive to baseball, but it was a great place to play baseball. It was uh, baseball somewhat of a novelty there. The first year I was there was the first year they had a minor league team in Burlington, Vermont. So they actually kind of rolled out the carpet for us, and they treated us really kind of like big league players. Huh. 87, you're with the Nashville Sounds. You're leading the league with 117 Ks. And then you got that call finally. The Reds called you up on July 31st at the big league. So the moment you got that call and found out, where were you at? And did you, did you have any cool stories about that first call to the big leagues? Yeah, I, uh, I was actually playing uh, in Des Moines, Iowa for the uh, Nashville Sounds, the Reds AAA affiliate. And my manager uh, came out in the locker room after a game one night, and he said he needed to see me in his office. And uh, he was a pretty serious guy. His name was Jack Lind. And I thought, well, I got in trouble doing something. I didn't know what it was. I thought, well, I'm going to get fined over something. So he sits down at his desk and asks me, he said, what are your plans tomorrow? I said, well, I, you know, we have a game. He said, well, he opens his briefcase and he throws a little pamphlet out on his desk. And he said, this is a ticket to Cincinnati. Uh, you're, you're going to be pitching tomorrow night in Cincinnati. And I, I thought, was it an exhibition game? Am I getting called? Because I'd been called up a couple of times to pitch an exhibition game so they didn't have to use their their primary, you know, uh, pitchers. So I, uh, I, 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 I said, is this for real? Am I really making it to the big leagues? And he said, yep, congratulations. So I remember I went back to the hotel and saw some of the guys and we're talking to them. And, and Max Venable was one of our players. He had been up and down the major leagues a number of times. And I asked Max about getting to the ballpark once I fly into, you know, uh, Cincinnati in the, in the morning. So he said, well, just get a cab. And I said, well, how much will a cab be? And he said, you know, probably 40 bucks. And I said, well, gosh, I looked at my wallet, I had like $8. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, what if I don't have that much money? And he said, well, here you go. He gave me a $50 bill. He goes, he goes cab rides on me. He goes, we'll, we'll make it up sometime. So I get I get to the ballpark, and, you know, uh, eventually Max got called up to Cincinnati. So I was able to repay my debt to him and get him my cab fare back anyway. But, uh, you know, it was, it was quite a... Uh, you know, it's quite a, a dream come true. I, I grew up about 100 miles east of Cincinnati uh, in a small town in southern Ohio, Wellston, Ohio. And uh, I always thought going from, you know, my hometown of Wellston would just be a, you know, get in a car and, you know, drive 100 miles when I was drafted. I thought I'm going to be playing in Cincinnati soon. And little did I know I was going to be going to Billings and then Tampa, then Vermont, then Denver, then Nashville. I mean, my 100-mile journey took me all over the world, basically, it seemed like. And finally, that 87 call-up was, it truly was a dream come true. And family, friends, everybody there. It was, it was quite a blast. Well, one thing, you were one of the few closers to really have four pitches, and you could command them all. You could throw them at any time. Some, some outings you wouldn't throw, a certain one or two, but sometimes you would. Who do you, where do you credit that to? Like, where did you get the two breaking pitches to? Is there somebody in particular that really helped you with that, and did you always have those four? Well, I, I didn't. Uh, the year that I was called up in 87, uh, I, the second half of 86, I was playing in Denver, and I was kind of like the 11th man on the staff. All the other pitchers on our Denver pitching staff had major league experience except for me. So I was kind of the mop-up man, to be honest. And uh, there, we had a couple of doubleheaders, and they, they threw me in a couple of doubleheaders to start the games. And they went well. And uh, by the end of that season in 86, I was starting. So I went to when we uh, started season 87, uh, the Reds changed their affiliate from um, their AAA affiliate from Denver to Nashville. So when I started for Nashville in 87, uh, you know, being a starting pitcher, 
uh, I was in a situation where I needed to have that that third and fourth pitch. So as a starter, when you see the guys a second and third time through the lineup, you need those pitches. So it really forced me to throw those pitches more. And once I did, uh, it really completed me as a pitcher because I always had a good fastball slider. But I needed that changeup, and I needed that curveball against left-handed batters. So, uh, again, it really kind of helped me in my development as a complete pitcher. Then I get called up. Uh, I only started one game in Cincinnati, and the rest of my career I've spent in relief. But um, the thing that was different is I had a set of pitches that I would throw to lefties, which is a fastball changeup curveball, and a set of pitches I throw to righties, which is a fastball slider. So I was really like two different pitchers against the lefties versus the righties. Well, that 1987 offseason had to be really weird for you. So you're all set to be in Cincinnati for 88, and then February 13th of 88, spring training's getting going, and all of a sudden, bam, Van Snyder to Cincinnati for Jeff Montgomery to the Royals. So the moment you found out you'd been traded, what were your emotions and thoughts on that? Well, I was excited. Uh, the, the time I spent in Cincinnati was, was great, You know, having a chance to have my first cup of tea in the big leagues, and my manager was my all-time favorite player, who was Pete Rose, and I was really uh, – you know, thankful for that opportunity, but I just didn't sense that I was going to have a chance to be on that big league roster in 1988. So I had my bags packed to go to spring training, the Red Spring Training Camp, which was at the time in Plant City, Florida, and I get this call from the uh, the, the minor league director, uh, that same gentleman who had invited me to big league camp uh, a year or two earlier. Um, his name was Chief Bender. So I, Chief tells me that uh, I've been traded to the Royals, they're excited to have me. Uh, I call my wife and tell her that I've been traded and um, you know, so we, we, we made that abrupt change. Now, fortunately, the Reds train, spring training camp was close to the Royal spring training camp, so we had an apartment already set up. We go there, and I remember the first person I met when I walked into Royals clubhouse was John Sherholtz, the former Royals general manager. And I'm all excited about coming to this new team, and I'm going to have a great chance to make the team. And the first thing he said to me was, you know, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you. Uh, we've looked at your numbers both as a starter and as a reliever. Uh, we're going to send you to Omaha to, to be our closer there. Huh. And I'm like, well, gosh, there went the wind out of my sails. I'm thinking I'm going to have a chance to make this team. And the first person I meet is the general manager, and he tells me I'm going to Omaha. And he indicated that we've got Gene Garber and Dan Quisenberry, who are experienced veteran closers, but we don't know which one we're going to keep. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make that decision later. Uh, but we want you available if something goes wrong. So I, I pitched really well in spring training camp, and, in fact, I made it pretty difficult for them to send me down but eventually they did they kept both quiz and gene garber and uh as a result i i start season uh in omaha but shortly thereafter i think sometime late may early june uh i got my call up to the royals and uh that was you know my last uh last time in the minor leagues yeah 191 era 13 saves there the first two months at omaha in 88 did you have a cool story of how you got the call to kansas city oh gosh let me think. I, I remember we were talking about Vermont. I was actually playing uh, for uh, the Omaha Royals, and we're on that long trip. When the College World Series <laughs> goes into Omaha, you take like a two-week road trip. And we were in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, I was I remember I got the call up. We were in Richmond, and I was told after the game by, uh, by my manager uh, that I was going to Kansas City. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, and my wife, she was very excited. Um, we... You know, we had a place set up in Omaha, but she had just gotten out there like maybe a week before to, to get the thing set up. And I called her and said, you know, we've got to change the plans here. We're going to Kansas City. So she was glad to you know, make the move uh, a little south from Omaha down to Kansas City. And uh, really, was, you know, we fell in love with the community, and we've been here ever since.
Yeah, well, you ended up on Baseball Digest's all-rookie team in 88. You were the right-handed setup man for Steve Farr, and Dan Quisenberry was also on that team. How much of an impact did both uh, Farr and Quiz have on you? Farr a lot more because I played more than uh, that season with Farr. Quiz, at the end, well, I, I think actually during that 88 season, sometime after the All-Star break, uh, Dan Quisenberry essentially, I think, asked for his release from the team, and he went on maybe to play with the Cardinals or the the Giants later that year than he was with the I think the Cardinals the next year, but uh, but I got to know Dan through spring training camp and then through that brief time that I spent with him here in Kansas City. But I got to know Dan more off the field than as a teammate and um, played golf with him quite a bit and a lot of that stuff. But uh, Steve Farr, he was a guy that I spent uh, another couple three years with in Kansas City and he really helped me a lot. He was a, a guy a lot like me had to you know, fight for every chance to, you know, to have the opportunity to, to, to play professional baseball, to, to have the opportunity to pitch in the big leagues. And um, he helped instill a lot of confidence in me that I had what it took uh, to be a successful player in the major leagues. And uh, when he was injured in 90, or I'm sorry, 89, uh, the second half of that season, I stepped in and uh, became a closer during the second half of that year. And that was my first entree to being a full-time closer uh, in the major leagues. And uh, I remember after that season they signed Mark Davis, so I went back to being a setup guy. But it was a real good opportunity for me to prove myself that I could pitch in that role during the second half of the 89 season. And that was a result of Steve Farr's uh, knee surgery that he had at the All-Star break. You mentioned 89, and that, of course we know that last year was the best Royals season since 89. How frustrating was that that you guys couldn't quite catch the A's that year? Well, it was tough, and, and the difference was uh, – in that era, there were only two teams that made the playoffs in each league. So you had to be one of the two top teams in the American League, and you may win 100 games and still not make the playoffs. So it's pretty frustrating. But you, uh, you know, the way things are now with the, you know, the multiple wild cards and the, you know, the three divisions, your odds are so much better now on being able to make it with five teams as opposed to only two teams back in the old American League East, American League West situation. But uh, you know, it was tough trying to get past the A's because they had a stack lineup. They had a, you know, they had a phenomenal uh, starting rotation. They had a bullpen that was set up pretty nicely and then having accuracy closing it out. So they were, they were a tough team to try to, uh, try to get past, but uh, you know, they, uh, you know, we, we never gave up. We just, we, we seemed like we were always in it right till the end. One guy I want to ask you about, I always try to get stories about him, is Bo Jackson. What's your favorite, the most amazing thing or your favorite memory of Bo Jackson that you ever saw? Well, the, the, I think the most amazing thing I, I saw was the throw in Seattle because I, our bullpen was right down that left field line. So I was probably, gosh, 70 feet away from him when he actually was able to, to field the, the ball off the wall. Then he just turns. He doesn't look. He doesn't take a crow hop. He just all muscle. You know, he throws the ball well over 300 feet to home plate, perfect strike to Bob Boone, and tags out Harold Reynolds, who was running on the play. It was an X-rating game, or maybe it's a ninth inning of a – it would have been a, a walk-off win for the Mariners. And here Harold Baines, who's a pretty fast guy, gets tagged out by Bob Boone, and we keep playing. And, in fact, I think Steve Farr later goes on and gets the win in that game. But, anyway, it was uh, that was probably the most amazing one that I can remember. Well, you became the Royals' full-time closer by the end of 1990, remained that way until 99. I wanted to ask you about some of the memorable seasons between there. About 1990, the Royals had the highest payroll in baseball. Can you even comprehend that now? Well, it was uh, certainly a credit to 
uh, Mr. Kaufman's willingness to to basically do whatever it took to be a competitive team. And uh, you're right, it was uh, unusual. And I remember you know, move forward a few years to the to the strike of '94-'95, and there was a lot of talk about you know how are small market teams going to survive. And the, I think the Expos had the either the best record or the second best record in baseball, and they had the lowest payroll in baseball. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of um, very strong arguments on both sides, but, you know, having the highest payroll in baseball, even back then, didn't guarantee they were going to win a pennant. You guys finished 75 and 86 in 1990, and, you know, the Royals signed Mark Davis to close after you'd been pretty good there in 89 closing. Was, was that at the time a pretty big disappointment to you? It was a huge disappointment because I remember after the last part of the uh, last game of the 88 season, I'm sorry, 89 season, when I had what I think is my best year of my career, uh, Royals manager John Watson calls me in the office and congratulated me on the effort and indicated that uh, he expected me to go home and work hard because I was going to be his closer going into spring training camp. And that's how I was preparing mentally and physically to, to be the, the Royals closer. And I remember turning on ESPN uh, sometime in December of uh, of that year, and I see Mark Davis with a Royals shirt, putting on a Royals cap. I'm thinking, that guy just won the National League Cy Young Award, uh, and he saved a whole bunch of games. I wonder what that means for me. So I didn't know if I was going to be a, become a starting pitcher, if I was getting traded. I really didn't know, but when I called John Watt, and he said, well, he goes, we're, we're planning on you being um, the best setup man in baseball. And I, you know, I said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll be ready for that, but I have to admit, uh, I was I was hopeful I have the opportunity to close. He said, "Well, stay tuned. You never know." And sure enough, Mark Davis obviously had issues uh, once he came to Kansas City with the, you know gaining that same level of consistency he had when he won the Cy Young in San Diego in in uh, 1989. So I had to fight a little bit more to get opportunities, but eventually they came. 1991, you guys got off to a rough start, and then John Watham was replaced by Hal McRae. Uh, what do you remember about that transition, and, and what kind of emotions and you know do you guys have in that clubhouse? Well, I remember distinctly. Uh, I was at a luncheon, and Joe Burke, the Royals' um, former president, uh, sitting at the at the head of the table, and I'm on uh, I'm at this luncheon uh, again, sitting by Joe Burke, and Joe Burke stands up and starts to give his uh, his talk, and he opened up to the the, the I think it was a Rotary Club that. Uh, we're going to replace uh, John Watson with Hal McRae later today. So I heard it there, and I was I almost fell out of my chair. But uh, you know that was that's how I learned about it, and uh, it was you know the the amount of talent that we had on the team. It was you know it was amazing we weren't winning at that time. But as everyone knows, the managers are easier to replace than all the players. So that was unfortunately the uh, you know the direction that, that things went. And um, you know John Watson, I thought was a would have been a great manager uh, had he been given more leeway. But I think it was tough for Duke to, to manage so many guys that he had played with, uh, the Willie Wilsons and the Frank Whites and the George Bretts and all those guys that he had so many good years with. 1992, you guys finished third in the league, or you finished third in the league, I should say, with 39 saves. You had a 2-1-80 ERA, and you made your first all-star team. You'd make two more later on. How special were those three all-star games for you? Well, it was, um, I think it's, especially the first one, it puts you on the map. Uh, when you play in a in a smaller market like Kansas City, you don't get a lot of exposure to uh, a lot of the uh, the individual stuff as a result. So uh, when I made that All Star team, it, I, I guess it kind of gave me some some uh, street cred. You know, when I would go to other <laughs> ballparks and you know when they know you're an All Star, there's a certain you know aura that 
you know, surrounds that. And it was, uh, you know, I, I guess it was from a confidence standpoint, it made you kind of feel like, uh, you know, one of the big boys. In 1993, you led the league with 45 saves. You had a 2-2-7 all-star again. But I'm betting you, you remember this just like it was yesterday. You, going into the last two games of the year, needed two saves to jump Dwayne Ward of Toronto for that saves title in the Rolades Award. How fun was that? Well, it was fun, and uh, I certainly enjoyed it, but I think my pitching coach, Guy Hansen, enjoyed it more than I did. Uh, he was really you know, working hard to try to get those opportunities for me, and obviously the team's got to win. It's got to be the right uh, situation, and sure enough, on the, um, the last game of the season, uh, I was able to, to, you know, to get that award. And you know, I, I felt like I was, you know, for a couple years I was kind of like right there in the top four or five guys, and then when you finally do it, uh, it's a lot of things have to line up right for you, and certainly that year it did for me. Well, 1994, you mentioned it briefly earlier, the most frustrating year maybe in Royals history because you guys were 64-51, and 51, you'd ran off 14 in a row, then that strike happens. So I know you're biased, but in your opinion, on a 1-100% to 100% scale, what was the percent chance the Royals would have made the playoffs, either the division or wild card that year? Well, since it was the first year of the wild card, we knew that there was an, an additional opportunity. I think we may have actually only been like in third place at the time. But we were on a roll. I mean, we had really gotten our pitching staff squared away. We had Kevin Apier and David Cohn and Mark Gubaza were, you know, they were all throwing the ball extremely well. Uh, our bullpen was lined up perfectly. We had great setup guys. I was throwing the ball well uh, in that ninth inning role. Uh, so we really uh, had a lot of things lined up to be a really, really good second half team. And I don't even think we started that season out so well, but we had caught fire. You mentioned a winning streak. We won those 14 games, and I'll never forget. I think we'd won 10 or 11 in a row, and uh, they, we were on the road, and we we're supposed to be going to Seattle to play a game. And as a result of the uh, some roof tiles collapsing in the Kingdom, they switched that series to Kansas City, and so we're playing in Kansas City. And it was a last-minute change. They didn't have tickets. They didn't have anything ready to go. So uh, instead of it being a road game in Seattle, we're playing a game now in Kansas City. And they basically made the entire stadium general admission. So all the people who would usually line up to get those best seats in right field or left field general admission, they were now at the ballpark at, you know, early in the morning waiting in line to be the first people. And I remember they had opened, opened up the gates, and there was like a stampede of like 25,000 people just pouring into the, you know, the, the behind home plate area and people wanting those best seats in the house because normally those were for the season ticket holders, but no season tickets were issued. So it was a first-come, first-served basis. And we won that game. I think that was our 14th consecutive win. And then the next game, I think we had 35,000 people piling in the stadium to look for number 15, but I think we lost that game. And But we were still we're playing really good baseball, and I can't remember how many more games we played uh, until the strike of August 12th. But nevertheless, we were on a roll, and I think – you know, for looking for a number on a one to one hundred, I think we'd have probably about an eighty-five percent chance of making the playoffs. Yes, gosh, I I hate thinking about that year. <laughs> well, you were the uh, Royals player rep during that time too, and there was obviously a lot of backlash from the fans toward the players' union. Did you ever feel that at all? And uh, was that ever an awkward situation for you doing that? Well, you were essentially a lightning rod. I mean, everything that happened, you were the guy that you know everything was essentially deflected to. And uh, really, as a player rep, all your doing is providing information to your your team your players so you had to stay on top of everything and know what was going on and have a a a good answer if somebody asks you a question especially one of your teammates um 
but you know it, it was it was what it was and and looking back on it uh i feel like it was a situation the owners were really kind of trying to force the players into a strike situation either take a salary cap or strike and they felt like if we were to go on strike they were going to win and they were very close i think to to breaking our players union that year uh, I, th- I think there were no one that wanted to be the first player to cross that line, but I think there were a lot of guys lined up to be tied for second. So we were getting very desperate there in that uh, in that '95 spring training. Had to replace some players going, and uh, it was it was a very very difficult time. One of the most difficult times of of, of my life as a professional, and um, you know eventually uh, Judge Sonia uh, Sotomayor changed uh, changed everything when she said that the owners had not negotiated in good faith and she's ordering baseball back under the former agreement and we went back to work and had a real quick spring training camp and and got the season started right shortly thereafter that would of course be a sad time for the royals though because you know you you got how mccray 84 and 78 and 93 64 and 51 and 94 and then they fire him they kind of blow up the team and do kind of essentially a fire sale because of the ownership situation at that time but uh, how mccray being fired were the players pretty upset about that overall well, those players who were kind of in the know were aware of the fact that he really didn't get fired. He really quit. Really? Um, he, he he essentially said, if you're going to blow things up, you might as well get rid of me as well because I'm not going to work through a rebuilding process. Uh, Howe had become a really good manager. Howe was very raw, never managed at any level when he took the job, but he learned pretty quickly. He understood what it took to, to manage players, and uh, he was at a stage in his life where he didn't want to endure, you know, 90 to 100 lost seasons. He wanted to win, and he just he knew that it was not going to be possible if they were going to blow up the team and, and, and go with the youth. But uh, unfortunately, that was the situation the team was in, you know, based on the fact that Mr. Kaufman had passed in 1993, and there was only a limited amount of money left behind to subsidize the team's losses. So, um, you know, how I think really asked for his pink slip. Well, I remember the Royals played several quote-unquote scab players that year. Where now I remember, I think it was Rick Reed, you know, talked later on about how they were treated differently and you know the old media stories. I mean, was it really like that, or did people blow that proportion? Well, Rick Reed actually went to Marshall University, same school I went to, and oh, really? When he finally uh, was called up to the to the Royals, you know, he had a chance to you really kind of share his experience with everyone, as did other players that were replacement players and. They were really at the end of the you know the rope with what their careers were, and they felt like they owed it to their families to to at least give it a shot, regardless of the repercussions. And at the at the end of the day, everyone was accepted. You know, the obviously the certain benefits that came, uh, you know, with being a member of a of the Major League Baseball Players Association, they they were the recipient of those benefits because you can't not allow them to have those benefits. Things like the minimum salary and you know salary arbitration rights, things that the union had negotiated for collectively. Those players, you know, they kind of had to cake and eat it too. And um, but it, again, eventually people had a chance to tell their story and why they did it. Uh, some of them regretted it, but uh, they felt like at the time that was their best option. You were an all-star again in '96, but you probably remember that year. You know, the bone spur and the rotator cuff surgery. How scary was that to go through? And did, did you ever worry that was going to be it? Well, it was, it was a really interesting year because I felt great the first half of the season uh, and obviously pitched well enough to warrant an all-star uh, opportunity. But around the all-star break, actually, my arm, something wasn't right. And I couldn't feel it. I couldn't tell what it was, but something wasn't right because the hitters were letting me know that 
you know, I wasn't 100%. So I kept going out there, and eventually, uh, early, late August, early September, I pitched a game in Detroit where uh, I just couldn't finish hitters off, and I called Herc Robinson. We were getting ready to go to Toronto, and I called Herc and told him that, you know, Herc, I'm not right. I, I just I don't want to keep going out there. I'm killing our team and so on and so forth. And he said, well, the MRIs show that you're clean. And I said, I know that. I have been through it all, but something's just not right. So I got on a plane, went to Toronto, and then the next day he called me and said, you know, I've talked to the doctors. I think with the season, you know, we're 20 or 25 games out. You know, let's go ahead and do a scope <clears throat> and see where you are. So they went in. Dr. Joyce um, went in with the scope and found that I had a torn rotator cuff, torn labrum, and a bone spur, and he corrected all three of them. Uh, I came out of the surgery, and he told me if I didn't have a sling on my arm, that was a good thing. And I didn't have a sling on my arm, but... Uh, my wife told me that uh, he, she talked to the doctor briefly after the surgery, and he said it was a lot worse than he expected. So <laughs> I went in for my post-op and saw the doctor, and he showed me what he did, and he said, you know, your chance of being back to your same level, they all depend on your on your rehab. So I worked hard, you know, to get ready, and fortunately I was able to uh, be on the active roster on opening day the following year in 97. I wasn't right. Uh, I wasn't effective, but I just rushed it a little bit too much. I came back sooner than I than I should have. But uh, I spent a little time on a DL to try to get things right. And after I came back the second half of that season, I was right again. And it was great to feel like all that work paid off. Well, you went through one last managerial transition, Boone to Muser. Anything stick out about that? Well, Tony was a guy that was kind of the runner-up in the Bob Boone uh, managerial choice in, I guess it was, 97. And uh, Booney didn't work out. Then they bring in Tony. And Tony was... You know, the way I've described Tony is he would be a great manager for uh, a team of very young players, uh, for inexperienced players, or even in the minor leagues. And uh, <clears throat> But it was really difficult for Tony to accept the fact that certain players, maybe, you know, they, certain things make them tick and certain things are good for them. He wanted everyone to be exactly the same. And, you know, he always said that, you know, George Brett's no better than anybody else. So, you know, no special favors for anyone. And that's fine. It's That was just his philosophy. But I don't think it's really the uh, <coughs> excuse me, philosophy that's conducive for um, managing successfully in the major leagues. One random thing that I think I remember and I want to ask you about, wasn't there once an anonymous note sent to you, like around the All-Star break, that you were tipping pitches and, and like, you know, to, to be nice to you and that kind of turned your season around? I don't know what year that was, but did that really happen or am I wrong about that? Well, Pat Borders, who was a catcher, uh, caught briefly with us in, in Kansas City. He told me that when he was in Toronto, they had a book on me about tipping my pitches. And I said, well, tell me what it is. And he goes, I can't remember what it was. And he said, well, when we go to Toronto, I'll look in the file. He goes, I know where they keep all that stuff. I'll look in the <laughs> file, and I'll let you know. So we go to Toronto, and I kept saying, hey, you got to find out that information. And he, he kept telling me that, well, I can't get into the file. I can't get into the file. So I think at the end of the day, it was kind of like that hitters, you know, you know that promise they have that they're, they're not going to give up any of the secrets to the pitchers. So he would never tell me what I was doing to, uh, as far as tipping my pitches. So I never learned what it was. I, I, I looked at video. I tried everything I could possibly find uh, to, to figure out what it was, but I never did. Maybe they destroyed them like the Kennedy Files or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd pitched two more years with the Royals, 98-99, before retiring at the end of that season. I remember the quote you always used to say, and you kind of already said it earlier, but, quote, the hitters will let me know when it's time to walk away. So at what point in 99 did you know that would be the last year? Well, 
is ironic because 98, I had one of my best years of my career. Uh, 99, I'm in spring training camp, and I'm throwing the ball extremely well. <clears throat> Probably felt as good as I could ever remember feeling. <laughs> and everyone was talking about how uh, how well I was throwing the ball. And I we had a new pitching coach. His name is Mark Wiley. And uh, I pitched in a game, and like the probably the second week of spring training, pitched in the game, and everything was fine. Came back the next day, and my name's on the list of pitch again. And I asked Mark about the fact that, hey, I just pitched yesterday. It's kind of early and can't be going back-to-back days. He said, yeah, I guess I want you to pitch again. So I pitched again. So I came back in for the third day, and I'm on the same list to pitch in the third day in a row. And I he asked me about it, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not so sure I can even pitch today. He goes, no, give it a shot. He goes, I used to do this with Jose Mesa when I had him over in Cleveland. He goes, what I'm trying to do is really, you know, break your arm down, you know, get you uh, kind of a point where you'll just start building back up, and by the end of spring training you should be really strong. And I thought to myself, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but, you know, he, he, he's got some experience. He wants me to do it. So I gave it a shot. I remember I pitched in Dunedin, Florida against the Blue Jays. Never made it out of the inning. And I gave up probably one of the longest home runs ever. Carlos Delgado hit a ball that's probably still going today. But, uh, you know, I, it, it seemed like I went from being on top of my game, throwing the ball as well as I've ever thrown it, to after those three days, back-to-back-to-back to back to back in spring training camp, I just never, my arm was never the same. And uh, I had a couple of stretches during the season where it seemed like it would kind of be coming back, and then it would it would go again. And you know, I mean, as a pitcher, you know when you have it and you know when you don't. And I just, I could tell that it just wasn't there, and I, uh, I would make pitches that I was accustomed to getting guys out with, and they're you know hitting balls in the gap, and I'm backing up bases, and that was really when I knew that um, it was probably going to be it for me. When you look back at your Royals career, what are you most proud of? I think just the longevity, the fact that I was able to be a consistent performer for my manager, for my team, for you know most of uh, the biggest part of a dozen years. Uh, that '99 season was the only year that I felt like. I was a, a, a big disappointment and a big letdown, but just uh, being a guy that when the you know when camp broke and uh, you know late March, early April of every year, the manager pretty much knew what he was going to get from me. Do you, do you have a single favorite game that you pitched in ever? Yeah, I think my first uh, maybe I didn't even pitch in the game, but my 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 first day in the major leagues as since I read. Uh, walking up the tunnel from the clubhouse to the dugout looking out on the field and you know I just I'll never I'll never forget the you know that amazing feeling that I had kind of overwhelmed my body that I've made it to the big leagues and uh, again I don't even think I pitched in that game but my first day in the major leagues is probably the one that was will always be uh, you know the most special. What sold you and your wife on uh, on staying here you've been here for many years now and what do you guys love most about Kansas City? Um, I think just kind of Midwest family values, uh, like the fact that uh, I can go anywhere in town and, you know, sometimes people don't even know who I am, and if they do, uh, you know, they always have good things to say and, you know, good good place for our, our four children to be uh, to be brought up, and we've just established uh, enormous amounts of non-baseball friends, and that was a thing that was a benefit of being a player who played in a uh, for a team for a while in the same city because you always have your baseball friends and connections, but normally they're from all over the country and some people from out of the country. But uh, when you establish friends with people in the town you play in, uh, it makes for a really nice uh, environment. And again, all, you know, almost all of our friends that we have now, uh, probably 
95 percent of them are people that we met as a result of just being Kansas Cityans, not being uh, Kansas City Royals. Well, last three questions for you before we let you go, and thank you for all your time. Uh, real quick, I wanted to ask you about a couple of your teammates who we've lost way too young who have passed away and just get some memories of them archived. Um, what do you remember most about Terry Matthews? Uh, Terry Matthews and I were on a uh, rehab assignment together in Omaha in 1997, I believe it was. Uh, anyway, um, I remember playing against Terry when he was, I think he was in a Rangers organization, but getting to know him better because we were kind of hanging out at the hotel together and doing things together. And, um, you know, that's probably what stands out to me about Terry. He was just, just a good guy, uh, kind of a down-to-earth guy, but a uh, hard worker. And he was not the most, you know, he was never a guy that was you'd look at and say he's going to win any, uh, you know, bodybuilding con- competitions, but he was a, he was a hard worker and he needed to. One other guy that was here real briefly, you probably remember him, five games in 1996 was Kenny Robinson. Any memories of him? You know, I don't have many memories of Kenny. I just remember him you know, briefly as a teammate, uh, but I don't have any that stand out. Okay. Well, a last thing then, in closing, uh, what would you like to say to Royals fans listening right now? Well, it's uh, you know great to be uh, able to be part of the, the, the Royals community again and, and, and lend a little... Uh, insight into the games through my broadcast work and uh, the fans here are certainly deserving uh, of an opportunity to, to wear that that royal blue with pride and hopefully the organization's at a stage now where it's going to kind of get back to where it was for many decades where when the season starts you feel pretty good about your team having a good summer of baseball maybe not making it you know to the postseason but at least playing a lot of competitive baseball and being in um, you know, being in the hunt, I guess, uh, through the month of August and September. Well, thank you for all that you've given to the Royals on the field and you continue to do in the broadcasting booth, and we look forward to having you as part of the organization for years to come, and, and thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Take care. Uh-huh.